Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Again, that's 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, we are drawing um, our series in First Peter to a close. We've been studying First Peter now for, for a couple of months, and um, I just don't know about you, but this has been um, just a phenomenal book for us to be studying in. Um, it's been good for my soul. It's been good for my heart. It's been shaping me and molding me. What does it look like to recognize that we have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ has saved us from our sin, it's saved us from judgment, but it's also saved us to something. The good news that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sin frees us and releases us to a life to where we live in such a way where we, we magnify Jesus and all that we think and all that we say and all, all that we do. And so this book has just been a great book um, for me. It's been growing me and shaping me as, as your pastor. And I my trust and my prayer as I've been praying for you weekly as we've been working through the book of First Peter, um, that this would be true of you um, as well. So we've got just two more Sundays, one being today where we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then next week uh, Pastor Charles is going to come and he's going to wrap up our First Peter series um, by looking at verses 6 through 14. So this is going to be the last chance that I'm going to get to, to preach from from First Peter. Then after that, in the month of March, I'm really excited about the series. We'll be looking at that. We're going to, to pause, take the five weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, and we're going to look at a series called Whole Church, where we're going to step back and I just identify, because the gospel has saved us, we have various identities. Um, we are worshipers, we're witnesses, we're servants, we're disciples. We, we belong to a family of God, and we're going to study those as we lead up to Easter Sunday, and then for the next several months beyond Easter Sunday, we're going to turn our attention to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's like the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. It's, it's the most probably famous sermon that people recognize Jesus has preached. And so we're going to take a couple months and look at that. But this morning, what we're going to do is focus our attention on the piece of Scripture that Amanda read to you, which is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now, when you're reading these sections of Scripture, these verses, um, what most likely hits you is this. Man, these just seem a little odd. Um, for the past five weeks, we've been talking about suffering. Peter's been addressing the theme of suffering. What does suffering as a Christian look like? How are we to think? How are we to act? What are we to do? How do we, how do we interact with those people who insult us, who cause us to suffer, 
who bring affliction into our life, who insult us for the name of Jesus? How do you live around those sorts of people? Then he sums all of that up with verse 19 of chapter 4, his summary idea, wrapping up this big idea, this big theme of suffering. He says this, Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And boom, and he's seemingly just done with suffering. All of a sudden, he just switches right to the idea of elders, whatever those are. Then he starts talking about those younger ones that are in the church. It's like, well, what is he talking about there? And we have to ask the question, well, what, what, does, what, what prompted him just to this seemingly illogical switch? Suffering, 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 suffering. Hey, let me talk about the pastors and everyone else hanging out in the church. But for Peter, what he says in our verses today, verses 1 through 5, for him, they actually do connect to everything he's been saying before. And you can tell that because of the one little word that he begins at the beginning of verse 1. When he says, so, I exhort the elders among you, that so in the original language is a word that says, because of everything I've just said about suffering, you need to understand this. As a direct impact on the way believers live around each other. The verses that we're going to study this morning, verses 1 through 5, they are not disconnected from everything that we've been learning about suffering. Remember, these men and women that Peter wrote to are men and women who are suffering because they are Christians. There's affliction in their life. There's trial that's in their life. The leaders of the church are being insulted for the name of Christ. Men and women... Mommies and daddies, husbands and wives, singles, littles, all the way to the senior adult, everybody in between, because they are Christians, they have suffering, they have trial, they have affliction in their life. And in the middle of their suffering, even in the way Peter addresses the elders, these people who are leaders, elders are leaders in the church, they are, they are pastors of the church, and even in the way that Peter addresses those who are younger ones, which is his code word for just everyone else who's in the church who's not a leader, even in the way that Peter addresses these brothers and sisters in Christ, he's going to, to speak hope in the midst of their situation. In the middle of their suffering, Peter is going to point them to Jesus. He's going to confess, yes, he's going to admit, suffering brings stress to your life. He's going to acknowledge difficulty in life is part of living in this fallen world. But he's going to encourage them. He's going to exhort them. Don't let the stress of life lead to ungodly behavior in your life. Instead, let suffering, let trial, let affliction, let the stress and difficulty of life actually lead you to Christ-like behavior, specifically the Christ-like behavior of humility. Humility is to lead believers to love, serve, and submit to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Believers are to be marked by humility. And I think from these verses this morning, we can learn these three things. That humility leads us to love, humility leads us to serve, and humility will lead us to submit. 
we're going to see humility that loves, humility that serves, humility that submits. And so what we're actually going to do is jump all the way down to the end of verse 5. And what you're going to see is this. Peter's going to give us his big idea. He's going to enwrap, he's going to envelope everybody. He's going to say everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a leader in the church. It doesn't matter if you're just an average Christian in the church. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you are a Christian. You are to be marked by humility that leads to loving others no matter the situation in your life. And then for Peter, what he's going to do is he's going to turn and apply it in two different ways. So for him, he's going to step back. He's going to look at all the different churches in Asia Minor, the country of Turkey today. That's where this letter was written to. He's going to scale back and take this big idea, this general principle, humility leads to loving others no matter the situation. Then he's going to say, this is what it looks like in the life of the leaders of the church. Humility that serves. Then he's going to say, this is what it looks like in the life of everyday Christians It looks like this, humility that submits. And then what we're going to do at the end is scale back and go, how does this relate to me in the year 2015 in Springfield, Illinois, with my relationships, with my workplace, with where I live? So first, let's turn our attention to this idea, the general principle, the main idea that humility should lead us to love, humility that loves Look in your copy of Scripture all the way down at the last sentence of verse 5. Peter writes this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. The reason why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility that loves. See, in light of suffering and the stress it brings to life, Peter is going to issue the call of humility for all believers. Peter wants us to put on humility like you put on clothing in the morning. Like so just the way that you, you put on pajamas at night, the way, that, the way that you get up in the morning and you go, I'm going to start my work day today. So you make the decision, I'm going to actively put on clothes. I'm going to clothe myself with some pants. I'm going, to, I'm going to put on a shirt. I'm going to put on some socks. I'm going to put on some shoes. I'm going to actively clothe myself. Peter says that same kind of mindset, that same kind of action, we are to, as Christians, do, but we're to clothe ourselves not merely with clothing, but we're to clothe ourselves with humility. Humility is to be like a garment that we put on. And notice that the call to clothe yourselves with humility isn't a call to serve yourself with humility, but it's actually a call to clothe yourself with humility so that you will image Jesus, so that you will show Jesus not to just yourself serving yourself, but to one another, to those brothers and sisters in Christ that you interact with within the church. See, the good news of the cross frees a person from self-serving and frees them to actually serve others. The Bible calls this humility. See, humility points outward. Humility seeks the interests of others first. The Apostle Paul, in the letter that he wrote to the believers in the city of Philippi, wrote this about humility. He said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, see, humility recognizes this. Humility recognizes that we are to care for ourselves. Humility doesn't negate caring for yourself. What humility says is this, is I'm not going to magnify my needs. I'm not going to magnify my interests over your interests. Yes, let each of you look to his own interests, but don't look only to your own interests. Don't spend all your time. Don't spend all your energy. Don't spend all of the gifts that God has given you on just building yourself up. Yes, look to your own interests, but even more so, look to the interests of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition, from self-boasting, from self-promotion. Don't do these things from conceit, but in humility... What are you supposed to do? You're to count others more significant than yourselves. In light of this, humility can ultimately be defined by love. See, God's people are to be clothed with humility that loves one another no matter the situation. No matter the situation. See, this is the path of God's unmerited favor. That's the point of this This quote that Peter pulls up, when Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, he says the reason why I can say this, and he dives all the way back into the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 3, and he says this. The reason why I say this is because this truth exists. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, notice what Peter is doing. Peter is rightly recognizing the reality of these believers of Asia Minor. Peter's not a buffoon. Peter's not stupid. Peter knows that these believers in Jesus Christ are suffering. And he knows what that means. Suffering is hard because suffering is suffering. Trial is hard because it's trial. Affliction is hard because it's affliction. He, he rightly recognizes that they live in a world that is broken. And that means something. So Peter is rightly recognizing their reality. They are experiencing suffering, and suffering brings stress to life. Affliction brings strain to life. Trials of life, living in this world, brings stress. It brings difficulty. It brings hardship to this life. But he calls them, even in the midst of the stress of suffering, he calls them to exhibit the fruit of humility in the midst of their suffering. See, their suffering is real. It is producing real emotions. It is producing real feelings, real thoughts. It's producing real stress. Yet in the midst of this reality, Peter beckons these believers to something better. He doesn't grant an all-access pass to sin just because the current situation in life is tough. Notice what he's doing. He doesn't step back and go, man, life's pretty hard, guys. Suffering, trial, affliction. doesn't matter how you react to this. I mean, suffering's hard. So, I mean, if you react to it by being prideful, ah, that's okay. Leaders, if if you're suffering for the name of Christ, if this stressful situation falls into your lap and you react in a domineering way abusing your authority in the church. Man, that's okay. I mean, people understand life's hard, right? No, notice that's not what he's saying. The stress and strain of their situation is not meant to lead to sin. 
Rather, the stress and strain of their situation is meant to actually produce the fruit of humility. A marker of God's people is humility, and humility is to flush itself out among the leaders of the church, the elders, and humility is to flush itself out amongst the younger ones in the church, everyone else who falls outside of that category of being a leader within the church. So Peter is giving this grand idea, big idea, humility that loves, and humility that loves encompasses everybody. So for Delta Church, it encompasses me, Charles, John, Brian, Tom, and it encompasses all of you guys who fall outside of that category. You and I are to be a people who are cloaked with humility that leads to loving each other no matter the situation. Whether your life is easy right now and it's just this blessing, or whether your life is hard right now and there is hardship, you don't get to use the excuse of life is hard to draw the conclusion that I don't have to serve you, I don't have to be humble toward you, I don't have to love you. Love you, Peter says we, we are not to think that way. So now what he does is he takes this big idea, he steps back, humility that loves, and he says, clothe yourselves with humility. So elders, leaders of the church, pastors, overseers, you shepherds of the church, what does it specifically look like for you to clothe yourself with humility? And I think it is this. Elders, when they're clothed with humility will serve the body of believers. For leaders in the church to clothe themselves with humility leads to humility that serves people. Humility that serves. Look at verses 2 and 3. Peter's going to call these believers, step back to verse 1, Peter's going to to call these believers, he's going to exhort them. He says in verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you, As a fellow elder, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. See, Peter's a fellow elder. He's a witness of Christ's sufferings. He's a partaker of the future glory that's going to be revealed when Jesus comes again. So standing on this authority, he says, listen, I have got something I need to tell you. I'm going to teach you something that you need to know. I'm going to exhort you to adopt this mindset, leaders of the church, and what it looks like to apply to your lives humility. Specifically for you, it looks like humility that serves others. It doesn't look like humility that serves yourself. So in verses 2 and 3, he says this. Let me exhort you in this way. You need to think this way. You need to adopt this mindset. You need to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And you need to do this by exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God and exercise oversight. Elders, when clothed with humility, will serve the body of believers by shepherding God's people. These people, you guys, when I interact with you, I am to look at you and not go, well, look how big my church is. Because my, me, and my church, and I'm doing this for me, and look how great my and me is for me. I'm supposed to look at you and go, no, I have a job. I am to look at you and go, you belong to God. And it is my job. I am to be a steward. I am to be a caretaker of you. In humility, the way humility works itself out in my life as I interact with you is to look at you and go, how can I serve you by pointing you to Jesus Christ? Peter's encouraging the leaders of the church 
The people that you shepherd, the people you pastor, they belong to God. They belong to Him. And the purpose of an elder is to care for and tend God's people. They are also to exercise oversight. They also oversee God's people by leading God's people spiritually, by continually and forever pointing them to the good news of Jesus, constantly going, don't look at me and my leadership, but look to Jesus Christ. Don't look to me and boast in me as your leader, but continually look to Jesus Christ. Christ. See, I think what Peter's doing is he rightly recognizes this, that there's a temptation that lands in the lap of a leader, of an elder, of a pastor of a church when life gets hard. See, the danger is that the strain of suffering could lead these men away from humble service towards God's people. So in the light of stress and suffering, look what he does. He challenges these guys. I think what he's saying is this. Listen, the church that you're leading is experiencing suffering just because they're a Christian. You yourself, leader, are experiencing suffering. You're being insulted for the name of Christ. So in the heat of life, in this pressure cooker situation, in the difficulty and the hardship of you suffering because you are experiencing this hard situation, don't drift in the hardness of the situation to things that are ungodly, but rather use this situation. Let God use this situation in your life to lead you to godliness, lead you to humility. And that's exactly what Peter does. Notice he gives three not-but statements. He says, shepherd the flock, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. See, in light of the stress of suffering, Peter is calling these leaders to humbly serve. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God has have you. Don't let the strain of suffering rob your desire and joy. Don't serve merely out of obligation. Instead, serve willingly with wholehearted devotion even in the midst of this reality. He calls them to humbly serve the people of God. Don't do it for shameful gain, but do it eagerly. Don't step into the situation and go, well, you know what? You, I mean, it's not hard to imagine the situation where there was an elder who had a church who was perhaps experiencing suffering for the sake of Christ. Even he himself was experiencing suffering for the sake of Christ. And he would go something like this. Well, I mean, this is pretty hard. Um, and the hardness of the situation, I mean, I'm, I'm, not getting, I'm not getting paid enough to do this kind of work. I mean, if you guys can pony up a little extra dough, then maybe I'll start doing what God has called me to do. I mean, if I'm going to step out into the limelight as a leader of this church and I'm going to take the hits because I'm the pastor of this church, I mean, it'll be worth it to me when you guys put, put a little extra into my house, put a little extra food on the table. And Peter says, no, don't, don't let the suffering and the pressure of suffering move you to self-interest. Don't, don't let it move you to serve people with greedy intention It doesn't matter the situation. Let your desire to humbly serve be your motivation. Serve with eagerness. Serve because God has called you 
to serve. Don't serve trying to extract something out of your people. Serve because simply God has called you to serve no matter the situation that you find yourself in. See, third, humbly serve. What's he say there? He says, don't, don't serve your people. Don't, don't do it in a domineering manner. Don't shepherd the flock. Don't exercise oversight in a way that domineers over those in your church, but actually shepherd and oversee people in your church by being an example to them. Don't let the stress of suffering lead you to oppress God's people with excessive power. Rather, serve with the power of example. See, again, we can create that exact same scenario where, say, the church is suffering or, say, that leader, that elder himself is suffering. And it's not hard to to imagine this leader coming in and going, okay, now listen, if you guys would just listen to what I have to say, then everything would be okay. Listen, I have authority over you. Just do this, don't do that. And you could see how quickly, if he's not checking the heart attitude that he has in the midst of this hard situation, how he could drift very quickly to say, hey, Jesus Christ has placed me as the head of this church. And then you start abusing the authority that you have, and you begin domineering over the people instead of using your authority to humbly serve people. You start using your authority to domineer instead of using your authority to be an example to the people. See, the leaders of God's people have a huge calling. They are to live your life in a way that is worthy of imitation. And this call is not meant to build up pride. It is meant to lead to Christ-reliance for these pastors, recognizing that people like me, Charles, Brian, John, Tom, as we lead you guys, we must recognize that we can only humbly serve you by the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. The authority that Jesus has placed upon us in these positions within the church is never meant to me abusing and domineering you. This authority is always meant for me to humbly come alongside you and serve you. And for the leaders of God's people, the hope of this kind of humble service is the unfading crown of glory. See, this is the great news for pastors. This is the great news for leaders. This is the great news for me. See, my goal is to care for you and humbly serve you for the sake of the chief shepherd. When you read verse 4, Peter says this. Look look to this reward. Understand this. When you, leader, give of yourself, serve, serve in the power of Christ. Notice this, that when the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ himself, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See, my goal is to care for you and serve you serve you for the sake of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. I want my actions in my life to always point to him and his second coming. I want to to live and to please the one who graciously saved me and called me to care for his people. Therefore, I gladly submit to his rule and his authority, seeking to humbly serve you and point you to Jesus Christ. I want to be an example to you in that way. So humility that loves works itself out in the realm of the leaders of the church by humility that serves. Now Peter's going to step back and take that same big idea, that call of humility that loves, and he's going to apply it to everyone else in the church that are not leaders. 
And his, he's going to call these people, this group of people, this category of people, those of you who are younger, the younger ones. So look in verse 5. If, if humility leads to elders to humbly serve, then humility is to lead younger ones to humble submission. The first sentence of verse 5 says this, Likewise, same principle that we just talked about in verses 1 through 4. Likewise, just as much as humility is to lead elders to serve, those of you who are younger be subject to the elders. Humility is meant to lead you to submit to the leadership of the church. A congregation clothed with humility is to submit to the elders. So again, the danger in this statement that Peter presents to us is this, that the stress of suffering could lead believers away from humble submission to the men who have been called to pastor God's people. See, I mean, it's it's just not, again, it's just not a difficult situation to be able to imagine in your minds. To where Peter is writing to a church in Galatia. Where the church itself has not come under fire and suffering for the name of Christ, but their pastor has. Because their pastor is living a Christ-like life. And as that pastor is seeking to serve the people, lead the people, love the people, point the people to Jesus, the rest of the congregation goes, man, I don't want anything to do with that guy. That guy's suffering. That guy has affliction. That guy has trial in his life just because he's, he's claiming the name of Jesus Christ. I will not listen to what he has to say. I'm going to resist what he has to Because the moment I align myself with him and say, yeah, that guy's my pastor, then everything that people are pouring out on him in the way of suffering and hardship and stress and strain, that's going to become me. And I don't want anything to do with that. And Peter comes alongside and he says, no, 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 no. Don't drift that way of thinking. Do not resist the leadership of the pastors of the church. Rather, clothed with humility, submit to their authority as they seek to hear from God and shepherd his church. The point in all of this is, everything that Peter has been saying, the point of all of it is this, that you and I, no matter where we find ourselves, either as leaders in the church or everyone else, is to be so clothed with humility that the world sees the hope of believers does not rest in circumstances, but it rests in Christ himself. Because just imagine this. Imagine, let's place ourselves, Delta Church, back in Asia Minor, first century A.D. Imagine that you and I are coming under suffering, suffering as Christians, being insulted for the name of Christ. Just imagine that there's just hardship, whether it's just for not even suffering for the name of Christ, but there's just hardship because we live in a fallen world. And imagine if we only pointed to Christ, we only loved each other, we only served each other, we only submitted to each other's leadership from you guys to the pastors if life was great. Life's good. Blessing. No hardship, no trial, no suffering. Of course I'll love you. Of course I'll serve you. Of course I'll submit to you. Then the moment suffering shows up, trial shows up, affliction shows up, all of a sudden we're, we're just, our church explodes. The outside world will look upon that and go, well, that, 
Your hope of joy, your hope of love, your hope of humility, it only exists in your circumstances. How fleeting are the circumstances of life? But see, our hope in the midst of the hardship and the stress and the strain of life is this, that no matter the situation, Jesus calls us to reflect him so that when an unbelieving world looks upon a group of people that exist in a fallen and sinful and broken world and goes, they should be falling apart, but instead of falling apart, they're actually being glued tighter together. They're, they're operating with humility. They're loving each other. They're serving each other. They're submitting to each other, and their world is exploding. How in the world does something like that happen That becomes a gospel proclamation in the midst of a fallen, suffering, stressful, strainful, difficult world. Peter's point, to repeat it, is this, is that you and I are to be so clothed with humility that the world sees the hope of believers does not rest in the circumstances of life, but the hope of believers rests in Christ himself. So the inevitable question that we always come to is this. So how do we respond to this? See, the danger in reading a section of Scripture like this is you read the first four verses and go, um, I'm not an elder. Check out, you know, you may have just been snoozing for the past 25, 30 minutes. Well, I'm not an elder. You know, John's just preaching to the other four guys inside the church. Wait, you know, nudge me, wake me up whenever it's my turn. Oh, verse five's here. Okay, all right. You know, that's the category I fall into. But my hope is this, is that you saw that there's a bigger principle that Peter's been applying. I think what Peter's been trying to, to teach is this, to say it again, that no matter the situation in your life, we will recognize that life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is stressful. There is strain in your life right now. There may be suffering. There may be trial. There may be affliction. But suffering, trial, and affliction in your life does not grant you permission to react to the stress and strain of life with ungodliness. Even in the midst of the stress and the trial and the strain of your life right now, Peter calls us, empowered by the Holy Spirit to react to the stress and the strain of life with Christ-likeness. See, I think the first thing that we can do in responding to these verses is recognize this. The stressful, difficult situations in your life are for your growth and for Christ's glory. The trial in your life is for your growth and for Christ's glory. The hardship that you're experiencing is for your growth and Christ's glory. The affliction, the suffering, the loss of job, the depression, the unemployment, the suffering relationship, the unruly kids, the no pay raise, the long hours, the miscommunication, and on and on and on it goes. It is for your growth, and it is for Christ's glory. Life is difficult, and God knows this. See, we live in a Romans 8 world. When you go and you read Romans 8, 
Paul describes the world in which we live in in this way. We live in a world that is marked by frustration, marked by decay, it's marked by pain, it's marked by stress, it's marked by strain. We live in a Romans 8 world, and this is a world where suffering, infliction, and trial are a normal part of life. You might be suffering as a Christian, that chronic illness, the rejection of friends. You might be, have suffered abuse. You might have experienced the loss of a job. You might be, be suffering under the actual burden of wealth, the temptation of success, a loved one's death. Maybe you've been the recipient of injustice. Life is difficult. God knows this. And the frustration that you've experienced in this life, the decay that you've experienced in this life, the pain that you've experienced in this life, the Bible comes alongside and says this thing that you've experienced, this thing that you have gone through is not abnormal, but it is a normal part of life because you're living in a world that has been wreaked, wrecked and ruined by sin. But notice that even in the midst of these difficulties, the scriptures always call us to live like Jesus. See, God never allows us to blame our sinful reactions on a broken down world. I mean, just notice what Peter does not say to the believers of Asia Minor. He does not come alongside them. He does not acknowledge that they are suffering in their life and then says, hey, man, I'm just going to let you guys off the hook. Uh, You know, I mean, as a result of the difficulty in your life, man, if you accidentally react by domineering over the church, I mean, oh, bygones will be, that's okay, you know, I mean, I understand, like, he, he does not do that. The strain of suffering did not lead Peter to say that domineering and shameful leadership is okay. He did not come alongside to the believers in the church and say to them that, hey, if you just want to defy the leaders because life is hard right now, I mean, two enthusiastic thumbs up. I mean, just go for it. Just let it rip. He, he doesn't say that. See, he comes alongside and he, he recognizes the situation. He, he acknowledges that they are suffering, that suffering brings strain, brings stress, brings difficulty, and brings hardship, but then he simultaneously turns on that truth and calls them to reflect Christ in the midst of the pressure of life. The picture of Christ's people living with humility that loves one another, even in the midst of suffering, is meant to proclaim a better message, and it shouts that our hope rests not in our circumstances, but our hope rests in Jesus Christ. See? When you and I encounter the difficulties of life, we are often knocked off track. A stressful situation lands in our lap, which leads us to react sinfully to the situation. You go to work tomorrow morning. You've already got a mountain of work to do. Your boss shows up with a big cheese-eating grin on his face and goes, Here, let me pile on another mountain of work to do. And you react by losing, losing your temper. You react by smarting off. You react by going to the break room and cutting down your boss with harsh words that don't honor and lift up the authority that's been placed over you. You're going to encounter the difficulties of life. And when they come and land on our lap, they often knock us off track. 
that stressful situation shows up Monday morning at the office. It shows up when you're dealing with your kids early in the morning, and we are caught unaware. We are surprised by that difficulty that just sort of seemingly matrixed in out of nowhere. Then there we are all of a sudden reacting sinfully to something that we did not desire to have in our life. But even as believers... We tend to respond sinfully to the brokenness of our world. We blame our sin on other people. We blame our sin on our past. We blame our sin on the difficulty of life. So, so we come and we experience that Monday morning blow up. We experience that bad situation with our boss where we cut them down or we react with anger and we, we often try to somehow justify it by saying, well, if he just wouldn't have given me more work to do, then, then I wouldn't have just lost my anger. You know, if, if my wife would just, just clean up the house a little bit more, then I wouldn't be harsh in my words with her. If my kids would just obey me, then I could love them and not cut them down with my words. See, the deceitfulness of sin shows up in our lives in the midst of the stress and strain of life, and it leads us to do and think in insane ways. We blame our sin on other people. Well, it's, it's their fault. If they would just get their act together, then, then I wouldn't react this way. We blame our sin on our past. Well, you don't know what I went through. You know, my childhood was horrible. If you, if you would just know what I did, then you'd be, see that I'm totally justified in reacting in this, this sinful, harsh way. Or we just grab the, the actual difficulty of life itself and go, man, we just live in a fallen world. There's no way I can live like Jesus. And somehow we try to justify our sin by just saying, well, look at the brokenness around me. What do you expect? course I'm going to react this way to the hardship of life. But we have to remember that when we react sinfully to the pressure of life, it is not the fault of the situation. Difficulties in life do not cause sin. I mean, you've got to hear this. I mean, this is a paradigm shift. The difficulties of life do not cause sin. Our relationships, our background and situation only provide the opportunity for our thoughts, our words, and actions to reveal whatever is already in our hearts. See, the pressures of life, when they show up on your doorstep, when the hardship of life shows up on your doorstep, when suffering, trial, and affliction show up on your doorstep, land in your lap, they are revealing something true about us. Our sinful reaction shows that we have a heart problem. So just, just, just imagine this. This is a real scenario that happened just this past Monday. So in the Davis household, we have something called Monday morning homeschool, which simultaneously bumps into something else that happens on Monday morning, which is called Daddy's Day Off. I work six days a week. I have one day off, and the last thing that I want to do on Monday morning is homeschool the kids. So Pastor John, the saintly man that he is, how do I react to this? I look, I've experienced something. My wife comes along and says, we have to do homeschooling on Monday morning. There's just the way our situation in life right now is, there's just no other way to do it. So I've experienced life, which I would classify as a hardship, because I don't want to do homeschooling on Monday morning. I want to relax. That's the last thing I want to do. 
So here I am experiencing something. I'm drawing an emotion from it. I'm experiencing a feeling. And what I did this past Monday morning was not react in a Christ-like way. This thing landed in my lap. And what I did was I reacted by being very harsh with my words, being very short-tempered with my wife, and I used my words in a way that cut down my kids. And my proclivity in that moment was to say this. If my wife would just figure out that Monday morning is for me, then this would all go well. If my stinking kids would just sit down and do their work and stop running around, then I wouldn't have to be harsh with them. If we could just figure out something. The reason why I'm reacting this way is because she doesn't recognize, like, I need a day off. And so here I am trying to spin this elaborate web of if my wife, if my kids, if this situation would just all disappear into this mystical Shangri-La place where there's no suffering and no hardship and no trial, then I would be saintly and look just like Jesus in this moment. You know, the halo shows up and I'm just sitting there looking all good and perfect moment of the world. But the fact of the matter is this, that's not what happened. Like those things didn't make me sin in that moment. When my wife asked me to do homeschool on Monday morning, when my kids were not listening to my words, those were the hardships and the stress and the strain of a Monday morning that reached into my heart, and by the grace of God, Christ was using that moment in my life to show, brother, you've got a heart issue. You're not content to serve your wife. You're not content to love your children right now. You are not in humility, rooted in the grace of Christ, loving your family. And I was trying to justify my way out of this thing that Jesus gracefully placed in my life to reveal an attitude of the heart that needs the gospel of Christ applied to it. And so I found myself doing what I told you guys last week. I was trying to get myself, do anything, blame others, justify sin in my life, and I was somehow trying to remove myself from the very place where Christ wanted me because he was using this to expose the sin in my heart, showing red flag, klaxon call. Like, listen, bro, you've got a problem in your heart, and you need me to fix it. And I love you enough to insert Monday morning homeschool into your life on your day off to show that you need the gospel of grace to mature you and to grow you into Christ. See, the beauty of suffering and trial and affliction and hard stre- hardship and the stress and the strain of life is this. It is there for a purpose to grow you and mature you into Jesus, to show you you need growth in Christ. And when you experience growth in Christ through the hardship of life, it is meant to point you to Jesus Christ and the grace found in him. See, the ultimate question is this. How am I, how am I called to react to the pressure of life? I mean, Monday morning homeschool is going to happen again. And it's going to happen again and again and again and again. I mean, I think I'll almost bum myself out. I'm like, how many weeks do we do this? It's like, it's like a half a year. Like, am I supposed to give up a half a year of my Mondays so I can love and serve my family? And Jesus is like, yeah, fool, you are. You are. You are. So, so I have a choice. Monday, coming tomorrow morning. Homeschool sitting right on the doorstep. I can wake up on that tomorrow morning and go, 
What's your problem, Terry? Why can't you figure this out? Kids, get your act together. Well, if this thing will just go away, then life will be great. Or I can realize that Monday morning homeschool is coming, and I can go, Jesus, my operating assumption is this, because I am in you, and you have made me right with the Father, that you love me enough to give me a homeschool Monday morning situation to grow me to be like you. I pray. I get up. I ask for the grace of Christ to massage my heart because my heart is hard and cold and brittle and it doesn't desire to change. I pray and beg the Holy Spirit, do something in me so that I reflect Christ to my kids, reflect Christ in the situation, reflect Christ to my life. Then I experienced Monday morning homeschool. See, Monday morning homeschool may not be your variable, but there's a variable in your life that is just eating your lunch. Some of you have a boss that is hard. Some of you are depression, chronic ill. I mean, that whole list, depression, a loss of job. I mean, there's something in your world that is just eating your lunch. And what you're constantly doing is you're stepping back and going, man, God, if you would just fix this thing, then I could look like Jesus. And Jesus is looking at you going, I'm not going to fix this thing because this is the thing in your life that's going to make you like Jesus. Don't pray your way out of the very thing that Christ has ordained in your life to grow and mature you to be like Jesus. In this moment, know this, that God is not absent from your hard situation. When you are in the middle of stress, when you are in the middle of the strain of life, you haven't somehow gotten yourself outside the circle of God's love and care. In the midst of the stress, in the midst of the pressure, in the midst of the strain of life, you are to run and rest in his love. God is growing you to be like Jesus through this hard situation, not in spite of the hard situation. But in it all, the grace of Christ is always and forever present, and it's always and forever sufficient. Secondly, most importantly... We have to recognize, and finally, just so you guys know. Some of you guys are like, man, this brother's going long today. <laughs> Secondly, most importantly, and finally, we need to recognize the grace of humility that's found in Jesus Christ. The grace and the humility that was exhibited by Jesus Christ. The grace and the humility that is perfectly, ultimately, satisfactorily, sufficiently found in Jesus Christ. See, the good news of grace that's found in the cross leads believers to humility, not away from it. You have been saved by the Lamb, the Son of God. His blood was poured out upon the cross to make you right with the Father. His body was broken, bruised, beaten, to make you right with the Father. You are a recipient of the unmerited favor of the God of the universe. Grace is God's undeserved favor toward us and is needed. We need this same grace that saved us 
to not only save us from judgment, but we need this same grace to equip us to live like Jesus, to live with humility in a world that is broken and in decay and frustrated and in pain and shattered because of sin. You have to know this. You cannot stand up, walk out this door and be like, I've got this, Pastor John, let's do it. Because the moment you stand up and walk out this door going, that's, man, he got, he got it. I've got some hardship, and I need me some Jesus in this thing, so what am I going to do? And you start talking with like this first person saying, I'm going to do this, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, and then what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for the inevitable failure to come. See, like, like you can't do this on your own, living in humility. You cannot live humbly by your own strength. The grace that you need to live humbly is found in the perfect source of humility, Jesus Christ himself. And what you need to do is not stand up and go, I will get this on my own, but it's to stand up and go, I cannot do this on my own. I need Jesus. See, Jesus exhibited the grace of humility perfectly, giving us our example. I mean, just listen to these words from Paul and listen to how he describes Jesus as humbly loving, humbly serving, and humbly submitting. Paul wrote this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus had the mind of humility. And Paul lifts up Jesus and said, Jesus is the perfect example of humility. His humility led to love, and we are to rest and look to Jesus to see what it looks like to live with humility that loved. And then Paul goes on and he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Know this, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus is the perfect example of what it looks like to empty yourself, to serve others. Jesus did not cling to his right to remain in the heavenlies, but he poured himself out as a servant, serving others, coming to this earth cloaked in flesh. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The humility that is the mindset of Christ led him to love others, Others by becoming a servant of others. And not only was Jesus the epitome of humility that loved and humility that served, but he was the epitome of humility that submitted because Paul crescendos with this truth Jesus Christ being found in human form. What did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient submitting himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is the perfect picture of humility that exhibits itself in submission. He submitted himself 
to the wrath of the Father, not because he sinned and deserved it, but because he was going to stand in our place on that cross, absorbing the complete wrath of God to make you guys right, to make me right with the Father. Jesus is the perfect picture of humility that served. He left his divine home to come to this place cloaked in flesh. So why? So he could serve us and love us and make a way for you and I to be right with the Father. He's the perfect picture of humility that loved. He is the example of humility. And we are meant to see this humbly loving, humbly serving, humbly submitting Christ and confess, I need Christ. Man, do I need the grace found in Christ. I need, you need somebody who has done this perfectly and then beckons me to follow his example, who beckons me to rest upon his strength and example. So lastly, how do we, how do we respond to this? I think we can respond in this way as well. Not only do we recognize that the stress and strain of life is there to grow you, to become more like Jesus. Not only do we recognize that Jesus is the perfect example of humility and he beckons us to follow his example, but you can respond by coming and taking the Lord's Supper. See, when you come and you partake of the Lord's Supper, when you come and you you grab this little juice over here. What you're doing is you're coming and you're grabbing that drink. And as you pour that drink into your mouth, what you're meant to realize is this. Just as this juice is pouring out of this cup and I feel it pouring into my mouth, I'm to recognize that Christ's blood freely poured out of his body. Then you're going to come up and you're going to take a little piece of bread and as you take that little square of bread and you put it in your mouth and as you're chewing and as you're crunching on it, it's meant to teach you and help you make this connection. Just as I'm chewing and crunching this little piece of bread in my mouth that when Christ was on this cross, his body was being broken. Just like I'm breaking this bread, his, his body was bruised. His body was beaten. Just as I'm crunching up and bruising this bread and breaking it up in my mouth. And for those of us who are believers here in this place, a right response for you is to come and to worship Christ by partaking of the Lord's Supper. To declare to the world, just as much as this juice was poured out, just as that, bre that bread is broken, so Christ's blood was poured out. His body was broken to make me right with the Father. If you are a Christian, it is good and it is right for you to come and to respond in that way. If you're not a believer, if you have not been saved, if you have not turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, then I would challenge you to not come and respond by taking of the Lord's Supper, but to challenge you to respond actively in a different way. To pray. To rightly confess to God. God, I'm not right with the Father. I'm not right with you. Because Jesus Christ is not my only hope of salvation. I am placing my only hope of salvation in everything else. I am placing it not in Christ. And the call for you is to repent, to come, to respond in a way where today you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope of being made right with God the Father. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your work and the way that you lead us. God, I pray and ask that you would do a good thing. That for those of us who are believers, we would 
respond today with worship. Worship through song as Todd leads us. Worship and prayer and confession in light of the words we just heard. Worship you, God, through the taking of the Lord's Supper, through having communion. God, if we find ourselves in that place where we are not right with you, my prayer is this, is that you, God, would save somebody today. That they wouldn't just sit and hear the words of Jesus and drift out the door, but that they would respond by turning from their sin, turning to Jesus and placing their faith, placing their trust in Jesus as their only hope of being made right with the Father. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.